And the other thing as an entrepreneur, at least for me, it's not that you're surprised when a disaster happens. It's you, you've already expected a disaster for the day. You just don't know what it is yet. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Awesoming's podcast, where we highlight people pursuing their definition of, you guessed it, awesome. So buckle up and get ready for some more success story adventures and failures from Kentucky's tech and entrepreneur community. Guys, I'm going to say it one more time. If you're tuning into episode number two, the second part of our time with Kurt Jones, stop, go back, listen to part one. He gives a bit of his founding story and some of the key points for innovation with his companies. And that's what we're going to talk mostly about in this episode. So I'll give you one Mississippi. Great. You made the right decision. Now you're back with us. Liz, take it away, girl. Sounds good. If you don't want to miss a Venture Lab series on the Awesome Inc. podcast, you should subscribe to our newsletter at awesomeinc.org forward slash Venture Labs. We release all the great content that we create there. So, hey guys, I'm Liz with Venture Labs here at Awesome Inc. We're going to hop back into it with Kurt. Um, Kurt, I want to talk a little bit more about how you built your culture at Dippin' Dots and now at 40 Below Joe. Um, in the interview that we referenced in the last episode in 2011, you talked a lot about, um, which I love that you said it's you think it's really important for a company to continue thinking like a small company um, to, you said, and I quote, work harder, work faster, stay ahead of the competition um, and support creativity among your employees. So what, obviously I think that's important for you. You were an innovative employee that built a business. Um, but I'm curious, how, how have you developed that sort of entrepreneurial spirit as, as the company scaled? How did you keep that spirit um, well, I'll stop there. How did how did you build that into the company? I think with Dippin' Dots, it was fairly easy because um, we all worked very, very hard from the very beginning. And like I said, every now and then we would add an employee. It was usually because we just had to have someone that day for something. And, you know, a lot, a lot of times we hired that way. But I think everybody was kind of thrown into this entrepreneurial culture out of um, necessity. So we didn't have training programs or anything. It's like, you know, put your hat on and go over there or can you drive to <laughs> Knoxville tonight? Or, you know, literally I mean, we've had, you know, we've hired people like that. Uh, can you open up a stand at Opryland tomorrow? Um, you know, that kind of thing. So I think we had that entrepreneurial because as soon as you got there, you felt like you were part of a team. It was kind of like I did at Alltech. It was all know, hands it, on it was, deck. It was for... still a pretty small company when I worked there. And, and you knew, and it also puts a little added pressure because if I don't do my part, like I was growing bacteria at Alltech, if I didn't get my part done, they couldn't mix products the next day. So, it, you know, everybody kind of felt that responsibility. And it was that way at Dippin' Dots, too, because it was just always something going on. I, and the other thing, as an entrepreneur, at least for me, it's not that you're surprised when a disaster happens. It's you, You've already expected a disaster for the day. You just don't know what it is yet. And so, you know, <laughs> uh, you just have to be ready to... Uh, to approach the disaster of the day and get past it and go on to the next thing. So that should be the definition of entrepreneur yeah, in the dictionary, good. just expect a disaster every day. Kurt, I'm going to follow up with the, the opposite. Where have you seen companies execute this mindset poorly and maybe companies that you've worked alongside of, or maybe even in your own business? Honestly, I never really studied other companies that much. I mean, I just kind just of heads down. Yeah. Like a true entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. Um, a lot of companies we talk with at Venture Labs, a common uh, fear, I think, and maybe not a fear, but just something that there's a, a healthy sense of worry around is is risk um, and the risk of new ideas and innovation and both financial risk, but also I think it is scary to sort of have an open box forum within a company. 
Um, what would be your take on what is good risk versus bad risk? A lot of times this comes up when I'm talking to a group of entrepreneurs and they, and, um, they'll ask me certain things about starting a business. And I, and I, and I always say, you know, there's a couple of things you need to start a business. First of all, you need a really, really good product or service, you know, and I always tell them to, if they're excited about it, see if they're as excited 48 hours later, because <laughs> I get ideas all the time and I'll now I put them in my phone or whatever. And I, and I come back to them a couple of days later and I was like, ah, oh, that wasn't all that great. Or maybe it was, or, but you know, so you kind of go down that road and, and you, and you, um, you know, you, you, you look at that. And then I think the other thing is, is that you have to be tolerant of risk because anything you do, if it's a new product or a new, or even if it's something that's already being done, you know, you have to look at different types of risk, you know, what other competitions already there. But I've always tended to go down the road of what can I come up with that's new. So it's not so much about, um, I mean, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get my competitive edge because maybe no one's done that before or that that's kind of where I tend to go to more. But I think you have to be tolerant of risk to be an entrepreneur. entrepreneur. Sure. Yeah, you just, and some people can't do that. Some people aren't born that way, if you will. Yeah. Did you, to push you on that question a little bit more, did that get harder for you as Dippin' Dots grew to not get into that corporate mentality, but keep that sort of risk, uh, yeah, that risk mentality? Well, for me, unfortunately, as Dippin' Dots did grow, and I would say once it got above 50 or 60 employees, we, we, I personally think we lost some of that entrepreneurial because all of a sudden uh, we did start having like people that started managing certain parts of the company. Sure. And so everybody wasn't out there and knew what everybody, you know, so in, in some ways that's great and mm -hmm. you have to get to that level, but it become in a way for a while less fun when it got that big for me, because, you know, now it, it was just, it became more of a corporatized business. Sure. And so that's, what's exciting for me now to be working with my daughter, you know, with uh, 40 below Joe, because, you know, my daughter was only five when we started Dippin' Dots. And she remembers a lot of it, but now it's more of an experience of, you know, we're a small company again, and we're going through a lot of those things. And every employee there is kind of locked in the way our early Dippin' Dot employees were, were locked in. Sure. Were there any processes you tried to put in place or like hiring for certain characteristics to keep, to try to hire the right people who weren't just going to go do, who weren't just task completers? Yeah. Like I said, for us at Dippin' Dots, and you have to realize, uh, when I was in Lexington working at Alltech, I was going to keep Dippin' Dots here. I started, I opened a store here, and uh, it, it just became very hard because, you know, we didn't make money right away, and so it became a resource thing. And so my wife and I eventually decided to kind of move back home, if you will, which would have been Southern Illinois, but we didn't quite make it to Southern Illinois. We, we got to Paducah, Kentucky is where we, we kind of settled in, built a plant and all that. But I think um, in that area where I grew up, I grew up in the second poorest county in the state of Illinois next to the poorest county. So jobs were very important. And so people there that wanted to work would usually find me. I heard you got this going. And, it, and if it happened to be at a time where we really needed something, we hired a lot of people that way. So we didn't really like take a lot of resumes in. It was like, oh, yeah, Joe's brother's looking for a job. <laughs> Oh, well, we, you know, so in a way we, we kind of built the company that way in the early stages. Um, I'm not saying that's the way to do it. I'm just saying that for me, that's kind of what we did. And, and in doing that, we, we had a lot of employees that really appreciated what they had. I was kind of going down that road to kind of 
yeah. kind of tell you my story, I guess, on, on that. Yeah, that. That's why we're here for your story. I think we, what we're curious to hear about is the experiences. Um, well, I'll take a quick pause. What you said earlier reminded me of when we had been from Toyota on the podcast. So we had a, a former um, interviewee here. And he talked about how there's um, a lot of different personalities when it comes to innovation. And the one that we tend to celebrate the most and why Garrett and I are so excited you're here is we love celebrating the entrepreneur, the new idea. Um, but what you also have to have is he calls them the the maintainers um, of people who do what you might perceive as sort of the boring job. Like you say, oh, yeah. it wasn't that fun anymore. You have to have those people as well. Um and I think what the code maybe that corporate innovation is trying to crack is how do you have a good balance of both people who have new ideas, but those who are going to keep the lights on and keep it running. Um, and so I think that like in the latter portion, um, if you have any other thoughts on like things that maybe even your managers did well to um, highlight people who had new ideas versus people who were doing a good job at just keeping things going, would you say you have any like leadership memories of that or how that went well or didn't go well? Well, I think the fact that that uh, that I and then other family members that had been there for the early parts of Dippin' Dots, we always supported uh, any innovation. And we would tell people, you know, no matter where they're at in the company, if you have a better way of doing this, our way is not the only way. So you tell us. And then I think, but I think again, though, later on when you had maybe managers that weren't there in the early days, they didn't necessarily have that same approach. It's kind of like, you do this the way I tell you to do it. So I felt like a lot of my time was trying to negotiate between managers <laughs> and employees because sure. I always wanted to keep that entrepreneurial spirit. But it, you're right. It is all about balance. You do have to have the maintainers. Those managers were important, <laughs> but it, it is a balance. And and I think if you can't keep that balance some way, you do lose the uh, the thing that really makes your company strong. You, you've got to have that innovative piece. But you've also got to have those folks that that maintain and, you know, keep the business going in a certain direction, too. Sure. That's it. It's easy, right? That's all you have to it's do. Very it's easy, just sure. the perfect balance <laughs> of, of finding both of those. Um, Kurt, did you have a question? Uh, Kurt, something you mentioned in the last episode when I asked you about Dippin' Dots, vanilla was your favorite flavor. And, you know, to me, that's, you know, your roots. Liz, you made a really well-spoken comment uh, about I guess, like knowing your, your why, sticking to that. Kurt, in a similar manner, every entrepreneur needs to have that belief in what they're working towards actually having a competitive advantage or going to be the best product or something that is actually going to be different. How have you continued to sew that into your team, sew that into, I guess, yourself? I mean, you're, you're, you're a seasoned entrepreneur. You know, you're, you're 33, you got a great job. You know, <laughs> you have all these accolades being so young, but... How do you continue to do that every day? Because we do hear stories of people who have success, they lose that steam, they lose that drive. So I think that's also part of the innovation we're trying to unravel in different companies and teams and leaders. And, you know, personally from you, I would love to hear, I guess, what's some of your your fuel in life? Well, I think for me, I, I, first of all, I just think we're all lucky to be alive. I think, hey, amen I mean, to that. You know, <laughs> and, and if you think about it, life is really special. And so I, I like spending my time um, I look at, and I even look at business and entrepreneurship as kind of a game. You know, you're giving a certain amount of resources, you're, you know, here's the rules and, sure. and uh, you have a time clock and you, you know, when these resources run out, the fun goes away, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah. for me personally, and, and you mentioned a while ago, you said, uh, uh, you know, that a lot of my business acumen tends to come back around to the science of things or the way that 
how things work and how if I could do something a little bit different, would it be a little more efficient or a little different or whatever? So that I, I probably am just driven by, um, like I said earlier, always trying to think of, is there a slightly different way of doing something And that, and that kind of, I'm more of a, probably more of a product development person really than maybe an entrepreneur. I don't know, but that's what keeps it fresh for me. You know, it's, it's, it's not about probably what normal business people really go for. But for me, it's just like, how can I come up with something different that would be, um, well, either good for someone or it might be fun for someone or whatever. Just trying to always think, think at it from the product development side a lot. That's cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Liz, I know we're going to, we're going to transition to 40 below Joe. Um, I did have one question and it escaped my mind as soon as I started talking. Dang it. It was going to be really good. Um, I can't think of it. So well, I was going to have a really great answer. For you. <laughs> Dang it. I dropped the ball there. Welcome back in the third episode. No, um, I think that's a great segue. You, I would love to hear more about 40 bullet Joe. Obviously I think a lot of our questions toward you tend to revolve around dip and dots, but that hasn't been your life for a couple of years. I love that you're running it with your daughter. Um, so tell us more about what life looks like now and what, where you kind of hope for it to go in the next few years. Well, the idea for 40 below came Many years ago, actually, we we had actually opened a few Dippin' Dot stores, um, new, new stores, and I, I wanted to put coffee in at some point, but we didn't do it right away. And we opened the stores first and got them running. And then when I started talking to uh, baristas and people in the coffee business a little bit about coffee and really trying to learn more about it, the biggest thing that stuck out for me was that they said, you know, well, if you're making like a cappuccino or a latte, you know, you want to, you know, you don't pull a fresh shot of espresso and you want to use it pretty quickly because espresso can start to, you know, go bad or whatever. And more I listened and read about it, it's re it really is oxidizing from the oxygen in the air, which a lot of food products do that. And of course, my mind went away from, well, how do I do it faster to how can I lock that in and not let that happen? I uh, can't take all the oxygen out of the air because we couldn't breathe. Um, so I started thinking of, well, one idea I had was what would happen if I pulled a fresh shot of espresso and froze it at 320 below zero. You know, could I bring it back to life an hour later, a day later, a week later? And I found that all those things could happen. And that that really took my focus away from just putting coffee into Dippin' Dot stores to, I have a coffee business because one of the things about coffee there's a lot of preparation to it. And some people love that. And I wouldn't try to keep anyone from doing what they love to do. But if you could catch a certain percentage of coffee drinkers that just want a great cup of coffee with very little work, that's where my mind went to. And that's kind of how I got started. You sold me right there. I'll always <laughs> say that. And I also prefer my coffee to be cold. So you double sold me. There you go. Well, and when I first started, I was, talk I was thinking about hot coffee. Oh. The idea was you locked in the freshness in the frozen beads and kept them 40 below. But when you got ready to use them, you put them, you know, you put water with it and steamed it or microwaved it. You brought it back to life, but you could bring it back to life six months after it was made and it would still be fresh. Very cool. Okay. And then later we got more into the cold side and everything. That's sure. cool. Is there anything, as we kind of wrap up, is there anything that you're excited um, to do differently or new? And I don't necessarily mean this just in contrast to Dippin' Dots, not like a what's better or worse, but is there anything that's excited you about sort of like this second breath of, of business under your belt? Well, what's exciting is that, you know, for many, many years, uh, kids grew up on Dippin' Dots. Those same kids go to Starbucks every day. <laughs> yes, and yes, so we do. And so it's kind of like, and, and, the, and when we switched gears a few years ago, 
we still make hot coffee and we still make liquid coffees out of our bees, but a lot of our marketing now revolves around just eating the coffee. So we have, you know, our little beads of creamer and we have our coffee beads. And so we're just, we're just eating those. So anyway, you know, like I said, the original idea was to freeze these bees, lock in the coffee, make a hot cup of coffee, make a cold cup of coffee, but it was all liquid. So when we had the idea to really make it more of an edible product, it really became exciting because now all these kids that went to Starbucks, but that were Dippin' Dot eaters, it's a very short switch now to say, I can eat my coffee. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what was exciting for us because at first, even when I had this great coffee that I could freeze in the beads and keep it for a long time, um, I was still competing with liquid coffee, but now there's not really an edible coffee out there yet. Yeah. So. That's kind of exciting. I love that you've grown up with your customers. You're like yeah. thinking of the next. I don't, I don't know what my mom is eating or drinking right now that you can make for her, but I'll, I'll try to ask for when we get there. You know, oddly enough, that was one of the coolest comments I feel like I've, I've heard. I mean, from a, from a proc standpoint, like that, that is so true. I'm thinking, wow, I, I have, this has been around for as long as almost I've been alive. Since sixth grade, space camp. Yeah. In Huntsville, Alabama. Space camp. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. I love it. Well, I remember my question. I'm, I kind of want to tweak it uh, a bit. Kurt, what is, what is one of the most proud, innovative decisions you've made from leading companies? If you can look back over the course of Dippin' Dots or 40 Below Joe, like does one specific one come to mind? Like if I didn't do this, I would not be where I am today. You know, this sounds may sound funny, and it certainly probably didn't have anything to do with the success of the company. But one, I always remember this one thing that was really kind of cool. In the early days of Dippin' Dots, we were developing the cold chain. I mean, you hear about the cold chain now with the vaccine and all that. But we had to keep a product at least 40 below zero, and you didn't have any equipment around to do that. And so we always built our own dry ice containers and we would put the product in, put the dry ice on top. The cold goes down, keeps it cold. But I was uh, flying on an airplane one time from Nashville to um, Los Angeles. And one of my employees, uh, a guy named Ed Fritz, uh, he's actually helping with the coffee now too, but he gave me this literature about uh, a thing called a pallet reefer. And it was a company that was wanting to get into the shipping business where you keep things cold, but not have a whole truck that was cold. And so it was the size of a pallet and it was so tall and you could put quite a bit of stuff in there and you just kept it cold on dry ice or actually you CO2 tanks and you did a powdered CO2 in the top. But for some reason I was on this airplane and I was so excited about what that would do for us that I literally wanted to put like a note in a bottle in case the plane crashed or something, <laughs> because I was thinking we've got to do this at Dippin' Dots. You know, we've, we've got to be able to, uh, uh, yeah, and these containers, they, they were working with a shipping company that would actually, you could ship out to a customer and then the container would come back to you. It was all built into the price. And I thought, we've got to do this because we've got trucks all over the country, you know, and drivers. And, and I know that's very small and it may sound weird, but that was really exciting. I love, I love it. it. That was I such an unguarded moment. That you was were great. like haggling to get this in the black box of the plane. You're like, no, listen, if this plane goes down, yeah, we, we need my social security this. number and this, this pallet information. No, that's that. great. Uh, to wrap it up, where can people find 40 Below Joe? Can they order online? Do they need to find a store? Yes, you can order online. Um, and we deliver, except in Hawaii and Alaska right now, but yeah, anywhere in 48 states. Uh, you can also go to our website, 40 Below Joe, and, it, and you can go in, you can punch in the state and it'll, it'll show you where you can find it there. Uh, we're still pretty small, still just a couple hundred locations out there, but next year we're hoping to be in some theme parks. 
Uh, we did a few Six Flags parks this year, but of course, you know, everything changed this year. Yeah, that's true. So hopefully you'll be able to see it in some local theme parks. And um, and we're just going to start putting it out in the little 40 Below Joe freezers. I love, I love it. That. If the theme park model isn't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. That's great. Kurt, Kurt thank you so much. That was my pleasure. Well, you beat me to it. I should just <laughs> let you run the show. This is great. <laughs> Thanks for thanks for having me on, Garrett. No, really, we appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, and um, this has been great. I'm excited to go go try some ice cream. Thanks again, Kurt. Thank you. Well, that's it, guys. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Awesomings Podcast. And another quick thank you to Lee Rosevere and a few members from our community who provide the music that you hear in this show. Lastly, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz. Or even better, come on down to our space. Come be a part of our community and get plugged in. And let's start something awesome together. You guys rock. We'll see you next time.